0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching from myself and Kiana Zaradi is part two in our Advent series, "Always Winter, Never Christmas." I'm sure you guys, or some of you guys, may have read about this um, last week on the first Sunday of the sacred season of Advent. Just a few miles from where you sit. Right now, uh, a local veteran shot and killed his wife, his brother, two daughters, and then himself. And then later that same day, I stood up here on this stage and I talked about the darkness out there in the world. And by that, I meant like the big bad world. And when I wrote it and when I said it, I was thinking about uh, the way our 24-hour news cycle sort of unspools against this backdrop of what seems like never-ending violence. And I said, I looked it up, I said, isn't it kind of simultaneously incredible and unsurprising that right now, tonight, the world is watching entire governments and groups of people attempt to end conflict with knives and guns and bombs, with beheadings and bombings and rifles. And then not long after I'd said these things about, clearly, events on the other side of the globe, news of killings just up the road, began to appear on local and then national news outlets, murder-suicide in Vancouver, Washington. I read this week that the uh, Gun Violence Archive recently reported that there have been 632 mass shootings and 40,177 deaths as a result of gun violence in the U.S. in 2023, breaking the record set by the previous year. At the time I wrote this down anyway, this may have changed since then, the death toll in Israel and Gaza was approximately 17,000, which means that the U.S. has more than doubled a warfare death toll with mass shootings and domestic violence. Images of flaming rubble and strewn bodies in distant countries tend to conjure up digital outrage and political division. But the awful violent heart of humanity itself cannot be confined by geopolitics. The heart of darkness is everywhere. It's across the world. It's down the road. And we want out. We want a stop to all this. Understandably so. We hate it. And we should. So we either plug up our ears against stories like these or we rush to social media to kind of voice our disdain for them. Or maybe we despair that we are ultimately hopelessly unqualified to really change any of these things. And we look at just how bad the world can get, and it all starts to seem like it's out there. But it's in here, too, in us. I've uh, never participated in warfare personally. I'll never own a gun. I'm not even the shouting type when I'm in an argument. But I'm amazed at how dark a place my own heart can become. I've made assessments of human beings made in God's image based not on the divine image of God in them, but the inconvenient friction that their personality creates against mine. Or I've objectified human beings made in God's image as if they were products for consumption to be ogled or fodder for fantasy that is itself a restless evil. Or when others have treated me poorly or when I have perceived their treatment of me to have been poor, I have failed to forgive them and sat instead stewing in my animosity and resentment, boiling over into hatred. I've prioritized my own comfort over justice and the well-being of others or my own entertainment over my spiritual formation and aren't these deep twisting evils the roots which produce in so many an outgrowth of violence don't misunderstand me I'm not saying that These things are just as bad as murder or war. I'm just saying that the same awful thing in them is the same awful thing in me is the same awful thing in us. And we want God to do something about this awful state of affairs that is the world. But to get rid of evil, he would have to get rid of us. Unless he has a better idea. Advent is the better idea. But to allow our hearts to be broken in joy and in worship, we have to allow ourselves to think about and attempt to understand why the better idea is so beautiful and why the better idea is so necessary. Why is it good news Why is it the very best news in a long line of bad news?
1: When I was young, there was a day when my younger sister was tormenting me, as much as any six-year-old can really torment their older sister, which I just remember her verbally abusing me and assaulting me and saying really hurtful things like, you're so dumb because that's how six-year-olds are with their insults. And like every other mature eight-year-old, in my wrath and my rage, I took a breath and I looked around and then I chucked an empty firework box at her. And unfortunately for both of us, the plastic box box just happened to hit her in the face, right above her lip, which split right open. There's blood everywhere. And in an instant, I went from being the victim to being the victimizer. Hurting people hurt other people, as they say. But what happens when that same hurt and rage and pain travels through life and matures with us into adulthood? Now, I don't go checking the first thing I can find at someone when I'm having a disagreement anymore, but... Just like that fireworks box left a scar in my sister's face, I have left scars on people who are really close to me because of my pain. My previous weapon was a plastic container, but I've learned my ammunition of choice in adulthood is to wield my words with such precision that subconsciously or intentionally, I deeply wound my opponent, who is often the person I love most. It comes out as an impatient or harsh rebuke against my kids or a really painful remark at the expense of my husband, Dave. Often, close and intimate relationships can be like this. If you're close with your siblings or best friend or spouse, they usually receive the brunt of our brokenness. Like years ago when I was a bridesmaid running late, making my ride and other bridal party members also late. And instead of an apology for running behind, I snapped at the driver, who also happens to be one of my best friends, and I said, weddings are never on time, and your makeup probably won't show up in pictures anyways. <laughs> huh, yeah. Thank you for laughing, Lexi. <laughs> I felt guilty that I was late, and I was annoyed that I'm never on time. so. Without planning it, and I mean, this wasn't intentionally, I put her down, I guess, to make myself feel better, and years later, I still cringe recalling that memory, and I also find myself trying to justify my actions and why I said it that way, and, no, but wait, we're still best friends. I mean, we are still best friends, but, or there's the era in my marriage where things were very, very hard. Growing up, divorce was really common around me. My parents split up when I was in elementary school, and it seemed to me that when things get really, really, really hard, you leave. When I was engaged today, I wanted a lifelong relationship. I knew what the Bible said about faithfulness and marriage, and I was ready to fight for us. I was all in, as most of us are on the wedding day. And as the newlywed phase stage phased out, and the reality of deep financial strain and mental illness on my part and the stress of a new baby pressed in, we ended up on completely different tracks. We were constantly misunderstanding each other. We were failing to communicate, and it was just a mess. And it seemed as there was a new conflict every week. It felt never-ending, and I honestly couldn't see how things would ever really change. And in my deep sense of dread and fear, I remember imagining or even daydreaming of what it would be like to pack up and leave. And I was fighting with the only truth that I knew, and that's when when things get hard, you run. And naturally, I was convinced that I was innocent of all guilt, and it was all his fault. I would consistently disregard his need for space in the process, I would steamroll his perspective, I would slice into him with my words. And instead of believing my husband was for me and for us, I was hurting him to make sure I always had the upper hand to maintain control. And in my fight for innocence, I was blind to the reality that I was a big part of the problem. We both were and are very hurt and very broken people. And like many of us, we took it out on the person that we are closest to. When it gets too hard or you're misunderstood, enough times you pack up and go, or so I thought. I had yet to work through any of my fear of abandonment or fear of failure, and I was basing my view of love and communication and commitment on the broken ideals from the world. If it was too hard or uncomfortable, you don't have to work through it. Even in preparing for tonight, I found myself trying to justify the why behind all these things I just shared, to make it more comfortable to share. But it boils down to the fact that I am a broken person who is held together by Jesus, and just as often as his spirit breaks through and there is beautiful outpouring of his goodness in my life, my selfish, prideful darkness breaks through too. Hurt people hurt other people, but the origin of our hurt does not negate us from the offense that we still cause other people. Now, what do we do with that?
0: A few minutes ago, Kiana read from Isaiah forty. Um the opening lines of that chapter are actually pretty fascinating because they invite two unique interpretations uh, in a kind of debate as to how they even got written in the first place. If you know the story of the Bible, it goes something like this. God created human beings to be his collaborative partners in stewarding and developing the world that he made very good. And human beings were given wonderful agency or freedom to choose God's love and leadership rather than having it involuntarily foisted on them with no ability to decline at all, even if they wanted to. That wouldn't be love or relationship at all. And since we could say no to God, we did. Almost immediately in the story. And since God is the author and source of all goodness, to say no to Him is to say no to anything and everything good, really. And so the human project in the story, it went off the rails in chapter three. We made it two chapters. But God refused to give up on His beloved. He could have just wiped us out and started something else, or He could have initiated some kind of cleanup without people involved given our propensity to ruin everything all the time. But he didn't do that either. He started his redemption plan, again, insisting on involving people, and in this case, a person, a guy called Abraham, if you know the story, and then his descendants, a people called Israel. But Abraham kept blowing it, and then so did Israel. And for so long, the people of Israel were waiting on an anointed king, someone they called the Messiah, to show up, not blow it, for the first time, and then usher in God's everlasting kingdom, bringing an end to all the devastation of sin and suffering and evil and all its consequences wrought by humans and spiritual forces of darkness that so devastated God's good world. But waiting a little while turned into waiting a long while, and every promising king turned out to be infected by the same evil as the one before him. In fact, eventually, Israel became so corrupted by their acts of consistent injustice and greed and idolatry, refusing to care for the poor and the oppressed, and they worshipped other gods, and God allowed them to suffer the consequences of their own persistent, unrepentant evil, And in the story, the nation of Babylon invades Israel and drives them out of their land and into exile. And in exile, the long wait for things to get better got even longer. Now, all that is the context. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, we read the good news Israel has been waiting for for years and years and years. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The exile is coming to an end. This is all going to be over soon. The waiting is finally over. God's long-awaited everlasting kingdom is finally coming. Now, here's where the debate enters the whole thing. Who the heck wrote this part? Because Isaiah died, we think about 150 years before the exile ended. So there's two positions. Position number one, Isaiah wrote the passage himself. And as he wrote, long before these things happened, his mind was sort of transported to future events that he would never witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he wrote them down long before they ever came to pass. Could be. But there's a second interpretation that the book of Isaiah itself kind of alludes to prior to chapter 40. In chapters 8 and 29 and in 30, Isaiah writes that, after he was rejected by Israel's leaders, he sealed up the scroll of his writing and he gave it to his disciples, his students and apprentices, to continue in his prophetic tradition. And this line of thinking, his words were eventually handed down after his death until finally the day Isaiah had longed to see but never did finally came to pass. And then his disciples, inspired by the Spirit of God, were able to commit those precious words to Papyrus for the first time, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The waiting turned out to be even longer than anyone had expected. But whose fault was that, really? That's the Christmas paradox. Each of us, all of us, are waiting for God to set the world to rights. A day when there we will no longer read anything about murder, suicides, or bombings, or mass shootings. A day when parents will no longer bury their children, nor children bury their parents. We're waiting for an end to our anxiety and depression. For cancer to be a word without meaning. A day when no dreams die. When there's no loneliness. A day when our sin no longer consumes us from the inside out. And a day when others... People's sins no longer affects us at all. But we are complicit in all those things. People hurt other people, like Kiana said. People make and drop bombs. People defend and buy and fire rifles. People afflict God's creation with pollutants and toxins through things like fast fashion and factory farming so we can buy and eat the things we want to eat. And the world itself makes us sick as a result. We need God to judge the awfulness of the world in order to make it right again, to say this is wrong and it has to stop. But if the world gets judged, that's bad news for all of us, the ones wrecking it with our selfishness and apathy and evil, unless God is somehow good enough, smart enough, creative enough to come up with some way to get rid of evil without getting rid of us.
1: When a tragedy strikes, we're quick to proclaim, come, Lord Jesus, come, because we know that he will make everything right. He is the good and perfect judge. He will restore balance and harmony. But do we feel that same sense of urgency and need and hope when it comes to balancing the darkness within us? Last week, Josh shared some reasons why we need to find the energy or courage to assess our own darkness, for without recognizing our hurt and brokenness, we miss out on the need for the Messiah that came and for the Savior who's to come. While we wait, we are living in the here and not yet of the church. We are called to live in this deep tension, being confident that we are redeemed and humbled by the fact that he is constantly redeeming. I get it. Turning inward, acknowledging, and assessing our guilt does not jive well with our twinkle lights and hot chocolate and jazzy holiday music, but as one of our Advent favorites, Fleming Rutledge says, even as the season outside gets more exuberantly festive, those who observe Advent within their Christian community are convicted more and more each year by the truth of what is going on inside, inside the church as she refuses cheap comfort and sentimental good cheer. Advent begins in the dark. Without recognizing our own darkness, we lose our need for a savior. When it's always somebody else who needs the saving, then we miss out on a vital part of what the Advent season really means for us, individually and collectively. What it means to open our eyes to a a different or possibly truer story than what we want to believe. Sometimes our inky black parts are really good at hiding. And other times we make huge deals out of barely shadowy corners. And I wonder if that's our way of keeping the really difficult things in the dark. I noticed this interesting line in a novel I just read. Everybody makes up a story about their sins, sometimes to make them less, sometimes to make them the worst thing a mortal has ever done which tells us that the desire to inflate or shrink our darkness is part of the human condition. Wherever you fall in this spectrum, the reality is you and I are in desperate need of the warm, illuminating, healing power of Jesus. Not only to make right all of the wrongs that we've done, but to make clear his truth over our truth. To be a balm of healing over the hurt that we constantly kick ourselves over and to ignite repentance in the place that we have overlooked for too long. An observation I've had over the last few decades of church going is the Christian's ability to pride ourselves, because I am included in this also, in our goodness. But the problem is that it's not our goodness, and it's not from us. That's God's image in each one of us breaking through the mess. We have this uncanny ability to measure other people's darkness or their sin or their shortcomings with harsh distinction. It must be called out. It must be cut out. Yet we maintain fields of grace for ourselves. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. We are the grass withering Verse 7 ends with Surely the people are grass, not just the oppressors or the slave drivers or the murderers, the people, us. And even if we find ourselves in a moderate place of awareness and repentance of our darkness, we can never fully escape the evil and darkness around us. Often our expectations of how God's judgment will play out are way off. When Israel expected a king to politically lead and restore their nation, they received a crying infant. When we want to see our enemies punished, God calls us to love them. When we want to ignore the darkness, God offers us the light of the world. Isaiah verse 40, or sorry, 40 verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young when we remind ourselves that that is the one who is lighting up the darkness around us and within us, then hopefully we see as we wait and as we evaluate and as we acknowledge our faults, that as our shepherd, he has gathered us in his arms. And we, when we want to despair at the evil and darkness all around us, we can be certain that we are close to his heart
0: acknowledging the darkness within is dangerous and unpleasant unpleasant because mostly we tend to think of ourselves like kiana said as as not as bad as someone or something else we think yeah i've got my selfish moments my secret sin whatever but look around it gets a lot worse than me you know the old expression no single raindrop ever feels responsible for the flood Uh, In an episode I watched just last night, season 22, a Christmas special of The Simpsons, um, Bart confronts Santa about a missing present, and he said, and I quote, I may have been naughty this year, but by today's standards, naughty is nothing. I didn't get anybody pregnant. I didn't Facebook a kid to death, make with my dirt bike. It's easier to accept our brokenness contrasted against someone or something that we think is much worse. But the reality is, whatever it is that makes everyone so bad is in here too. The work of self-examination is also dangerous, not just unpleasant. Because maybe you're like me and you're romanticized by your own awfulness to the point of wallowing in it. Yeah, it is all so bad. And yeah, we are so bad. And really, what God could ever love or care or want to save someone like us? The Christmas paradox is the tension between those two lies, the lie that the evil is out there, it's not in me, it's someone or something else, and the lie that God could never love anyone as bad as us. The truth is, yes, we're broken too. We've contributed to the awful state of things in ways big and small, and the truth is that God would be well within his rights to judge us when he does away with evil. But, but maybe God is big enough and smart enough and good enough to come up with some way to rescue us from the evil out there and the evil in here. And maybe that is what we will celebrate when we come together and we light candles and we sing carols in the darkness of December 24th. But what good is that celebration if we don't remember the darkness out there and in here? What beauty is there in a story of God with us if we don't remember that we don't deserve his withness at all? What meaning is there in the dark, sacred night of Christmas if there's nothing from which we are being saved at all? No awfulness into which God himself stooped down to become very small for our sake. So this Advent, my invitation is to ask the question, what does it mean for you and I to take a ruthless inventory of the darkness without and within, not denying it, not wallowing in it, not being defeated by it, but to remember why we need saving in the first place, to be honest with ourselves and with God about how bad things can get so that our celebration actually means something, so that it becomes fully aware and thus a defiant hymn of worship over and against the bleak winter of the world. Something more than the buzz and busyness of holiday obligations and glowing decorations. Good things, things that I love, but things that can distract us from the beautiful scandal of Christmas, the terrible cost of it all. As news of the ongoing conflict in Israel and Palestine continues to populate the for profit newsfeed, stories of Freed hostages became fodder for political debate and social media outrage and virtue signaling. But I wonder if you remove the fighting words or you take away the partisan trigger words and you just think for a moment, But a person made in God's image, whatever country they're from, whatever government they have, a person made in God's image who was taken from their family, a teenager or a child taken from their parents or a parent taken from their children or a man or woman or a teenager or a kid, whoever it is, waiting in the darkness, not knowing if there's freedom or death waiting at the door. And then they get to go home. Why is the homecoming so sweet? because they were held hostage in the dark when all hope seemed lost. If we're honest, maybe there are seemingly hopeless corners of our dark hearts and stories. And of course, there are many seemingly hopeless shadows stretching out over the world until a light shines in the darkness, in obscurity, a little baby born to poor teenagers in a cave somehow changed everything in the story so let's ask ourselves why is this good news in a very long line of bad news and then this christmas we can celebrate exactly how good this good news really is so let's pray together and ask god's spirit to prepare us for that work this advent season thanks for listening to van city you can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vancity financially at vancitychurch/give.